really look forward to these occasions with anticipation uh, because of the chance they give me to reconnect with uh, old friends in the Charlotte region. This year, however, I'm feeling of anticipation uh, has been tinged with a bit of apprehension. Our master of ceremonies, Henry Faison, likes to take this opportunity often uh, each year when I come here to remind me about my previous year's forecast about economic growth, particularly how it compares with what actually happened during the year. Last year, I projected that real GDP growth uh, through the fourth quarter of 2011 would average above 3%. Right now, it looks like we'll get something more like one and three quarters percent for the year, a fairly sizable miss. So I returned to Charlotte this year suitably chastened um, with a bit of humility, mindful of the humility one should bring to forecasting or policy making for that matter or any other endeavor. I suppose it applies to banking too. This is a popular time of year to conduct performance appraisals in which individuals or organizations look back and evaluate past accomplishments. The modern approach to performance appraisals is to focus less on criticizing shortcomings and more on constructive lessons learned that might be useful going forward. In that spirit, my remarks this afternoon will focus on the lessons one ought to take away from the past year of U.S. macroeconomic performance. As always, my remarks reflect my own independent views and do not necessarily coincide with my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee. The obvious candidate for a lesson learned looking back on 2011 is that forecasting is difficult. Indeed, I was in good company in landing so wide of the mark on real GDP growth. Numerous private forecasters, along with many of my colleagues on the FOMC, were forecasting growth of over 3%. Several unanticipated developments contributed to these forecast misses. Commodity prices had already begun rising when we met here last year, but energy and food prices uh, kept increasing in the first part of the year. They increased significantly. Those increases significantly outpaced the predictions that were contained in futures markets prices um, last December. That acceleration took a significant bite out of household real income growth, and consumers held back spending as a result. The natural disaster in Japan, which caused so much suffering over there, also had the effect of disrupting global supply chains and forcing production cutbacks worldwide. These all took their toll on first half growth in the U.S., which came in at a paltry annual rate of eight-tenths of a percent. Now, one would expect such transitory factors to have only limited implications for future growth. Indeed, auto production has recovered and commodity prices have peaked and are trending downward, reversing the earlier dampening effect on household real income. The more significant lesson learned over the course of this past year, in my view, concerns the importance of relatively persistent impediments to economic expansion in the U.S. While the pace of growth has rebounded since the first half of the year, most analysts are still only expecting real GDP growth to average a bit above 2.5% at an annual rate over the second half of this year. Moreover, growth has averaged only about 2.5% over the two and a half years since the recession bottomed out in the second quarter of 2009. As I noted last year, this post-recession expansion is lagging significantly behind the pace of the expansions that followed other severe U.S. recessions. 
The still overbuilt housing market tops the list of persistent factors that continue to impede growth in the U.S. Residential construction typically expands robustly in a recovery, but has been basically flat this time. The soft state of demand for new homes, despite record low mortgage rates, suggests that home building is likely to remain depressed for some time to come. What gains we've seen in residential construction have been in multi-unit uh, rental properties, reflecting the continuing shift at the margin away from home ownership and towards rental. This could represent a beneficial consequence of a retreat, at least for the time being, from federal policies that have long subsidized housing debt. U.S. households have also been adjusting their financial positions to adapt to the post-recession circumstances. Diminished income prospects and tighter credit terms have given consumers ample reason to focus on paying down debt and building up savings. As a result, consumer spending is expanding, but is expanding at a more moderate pace than in past recoveries. Labor market conditions, which are so critical in shaping consumer spending trends, improved at a disappointingly slow pace this year. Evidence suggests that one impediment to more rapid employment gains is the magnitude of the skills mismatch between the unemployed and the needs of growing segments of the economy. Recessions and recoveries all involve shifts in resources from some economic sectors to others because the composition of the expansion seldom exactly mirrors that of the contraction. That search process can take time and might require some additional training since the skills of those released from declining sectors may not line up exactly with the skills required in expanding sectors. And the frictions associated with this process of sectoral and occupational reallocation appear to be empirically significant, accounting in one recent estimate for about one percentage point of the increase in unemployment in this recession. Another imped impediment to growth cited by a wide range of observers is the array of changes in tax and regulatory policy, both actual that have occurred and anticipated changes that are, seem likely to occur. The list of significant and prospective policy changes includes the enactment of far-reaching health care and financial reform bills in the last two and a half years, as well as significant shifts in environmental and labor regulations over that period. While it's inherently difficult to model or estimate such effects with any confidence, we continue to receive widespread and persistent anecdotal reports from our Fifth Federal Reserve District contacts about how uncertainty about regulatory policy changes is discouraging firms from making new hiring or investment commitments. It seems plausible that such effects could be having a, a noticeable effect on measured growth rates. Apart from regulatory changes, the murky federal budget outlook also imposes significant uncertainties on consumers and businesses. Realistic projections under current law show federal debt outpacing our national income for decades to come, with no bound on the ratio of our national debt to GDP, our, our, our measure of income. This is simply not feasible, and the experience of Southern Europe demonstrates, I believe, that the real world ultimately will constrain our debt issuance if our own government fails to do so. Any sustainable configuration of fiscal policy implies adjustments that are bound to affect a range of citizens in economically relevant ways, either through higher marginal tax rates, cuts in program benefits, or reductions in government payrolls or supplier contracts. Uncertainty about the nature of those adjustments appears to be impeding many firms' willingness to commit 
to new hiring or investments. For example, uh, the cloudy outlook for federal spending is having a noticeable effect, according to our contacts, on economic activity in the greater Washington area. I should note that one component of economic activity has been living up to our usual expectations of robust growth following a recession. Business investment in equipment and software, that's our broadest measure of business capital formation outside of structures, grew at an average annual rate of about 10% in the first three quarters of the, this year, and has been remarkably robust through this, this recovery. Even with demand growing less rapidly in, than in the typical recovery, firms continue to identify profitable opportunities to deploy technology, to reduce costs and improve business processes. The fact that firms are finding such opportunities suggests that the underlying forces of innovation and creativity, forces that are responsible for over 150 years of economic growth, forces that get less attention than they deserve in these, in these disappointing economic times, are still at work. Those forces are still at work driving growth forward. The impediments to growth, though, the housing stock overhang, consumer deleveraging, the skills deficit, uncertainty regarding regulatory and tax policy have had the upper hand this year. They represent difficult economic challenges that are not likely to cure themselves quickly over time. My takeaway from 2011 is the lesson that the impediments to more rapid U.S. growth are likely to be deeper and more persistent than we thought a year ago. A related macroeconomic lesson learned by many this past year, perhaps I should say relearned, is that inflation can rise despite elevated levels of unemployment. As of last December, the inflation rate measured on a 12-month basis was 1.4%. To date this year, inflation has averaged 2.8% at an annual rate. Obviously, the run-up in energy and food prices earlier this year played a big role in the year-over-year -year acceleration, but the pickup in inflation this year has been broad-based. Core inflation, the measure that strips out food and energy prices, was nine-tenths of a percent last year, last December, but it's averaged 1.9% so far this year. The doubling of inflation this year, despite unemployment averaging 9%, undercuts that hoary old notion that slack in the labor market can be counted on to keep inflation constrained. As I noted a moment ago, however, this lesson is not new. We learned this all too well during the disastrous inflation of the 1970s. Despite this year's run-up, I believe the inflation outlook is reasonably good right now. Recent price trends have been quite favorable, and indeed, headline inflation has been quite low in recent months. Having said that, though, my sense is that the current slowdown in inflation is likely to prove transitory, as did the acceleration we saw earlier this year. The most likely outcome in the coming year, in my view, is for overall inflation to average close to 2%. Deceleration to a rate noticeably below 2% is a risk to that projection, particularly if global growth should soften enough to further ease pressures on commodity prices. But I still view the risks of, to inflation as tilted to the upside. A comparison of 2011 with the experience of 2004 to 2007, for example, suggests that an upswing in inflation at this stage of the business cycle is typically long-lasting. As for real growth, taking on board the lessons learned in 2011, I'm expecting real GDP to expand next year at a pace 
of between 2 and 2.5%. Two and that projection is predicated on continued expansion uh, in payroll employment and consumers gradually acquiring more confidence in their labor market prospects. Business investment in equipment and software, which as I've noted has been a key driver in this recovery, should continue to expand, though perhaps at a less torrid pace. Growth in export demand is likely to slow somewhat given significantly weakening growth in the euro area. Home construction is likely to remain relatively dormant and, like government spending, is unlikely to make much noticeable contribution to growth. This is a forecast of growth at a moderate pace. Growth, nonetheless, but growth at a moderate pace. Not as rapid as some past expansion, but positive growth nonetheless. I see three major risks to such an outlook. The accretion of consumer confidence in their economic prospects could proceed either more or less rapidly than projected. The dependence of consumer expectations on subjective assessments makes this difficult to for forecast. But I see risks I, I should emphasize on both sides here, both more confidence than I expect or less. Second, the pace at which businesses have invested in equipment and software is surprised on the upside throughout this recovery. While some moderation in the rate at which that investment is expanding seems likely, we could easily miss on that forecast as well. And third, the trajectory of economic activity in Europe is likely to hold significant implications for U.S. growth in the coming year. Euro area governments are grappling with the financial market volatility that inevitably accompanies ambiguous commitments to protect taxpayers using taxpayer funds, to protect creditors using taxpayer funds, forgive me. In this case, the ambiguity surrounds protection that might be forthcoming both for sovereign debt and the creditors of large European banks. The rapid fiscal and balance sheet adjustments and the accompanying uncertainty regarding prospective tax and spending policy appears to be dampening Eurozone growth, and that is likely to cut into U.S. export demand in the year ahead. I should emphasize, however, that my projection for U.S. GDP growth already builds in a substantial slowdown in European growth. Having shared with you my outlook for 2012 and having discussed two lessons learned in 2011, namely that real implications, real impediments to growth are more persistent than we thought and that inflation can rise even with high unemployment, I'd like to conclude by sharing with you one final lesson I think the past year provides. It is that monetary policy is often credited with entirely too much influence on real economic growth. Monetary policy is about inflation, that is to say the value of money. The effect of changes in monetary policy on real output and employment are largely the transitory byproducts of frictions that delay the timely adjustment of prices to changes in monetary conditions. Over time, these effects dissipate and growth is governed almost entirely by the evolution of society's technology, skills, resources, and trading opportunities. Yes, it's true. The, mon the stance of monetary policy varies substantially over the business cycle as real economic conditions change. But that's essentially because the monetary policy stance that's required to keep inflation stable fluctuates itself with real economic conditions. The macroeconomic experience of 2011 provides vivid illustration of this principle, I believe. Despite large-scale efforts to provide more monetary stimulus, growth is disappointed and inflation is ratcheted upward. 
in some sense, this third lesson is merely the corollary of the first two, since it reflects the fact that growth is governed predominantly by non-monetary phenomena, which implies that monetary stimulus can at times move inflation more than employment. This lesson leads me back to the apprehension I mentioned at the outset of my remarks, my discomfort with uh, the results of uh, my last year's GDP forecast. Now, I know my, my friend Henry Faison understands all too well the importance of Fed, the Fed maintaining low and stable inflation. Henry served as the chairman of the Richmond Fed's board of directors in the 1990s, and he was a strong supporter in the struggle for price stability. That makes me a bit puzzled uh, why he would hold me accountable for my growth forecast each year rather than my inflation forecast. After all, a classic precept in modern performance management is that an organization's objectives should be within their ability to control and influence. A central bank's ability to elevate the economy's growth rate over a sustained period above what it otherwise would be, while preserving price stability, is quite limited. I would suggest accordingly, Henry, that in the future you hold me accountable for inflation and not growth. Thank you all for attention, and I look, back, I look forward to returning to discuss inflation in 2012.